Hi, this is John of the Barstool Historian Podcast with a little disclaimer. It is February 16th. I am in an airplane somewhere above Arizona, and I've just finished editing this episode that we originally recorded on December 5th. So some of the references you're going to hear, references to the then-recent election and upcoming Christmas, are a little out of date, but I think you'll find a lot of the subject matter is as timely as ever. So, enjoy! Presidential cocktails, gubernatorial assassinations, night wolves, and metal noses in this episode of The Barstool Historian. From New York, New York, and Geneva, Illinois, the Sodom and Gomorrah of modern times, it's the Barstool Historian Podcast, the podcast for people who love to talk about history. This is John, sitting in the Lion's Arms Tavern, our digital tap room here in New York. With me in the New York side of the bar, as always, is Tim. Hello, Tim. Oh, pray with me. Pray with me, Tim. <laughs> stop. Stop, Dick. Come on. Uh, Timothy uh, Milhouse DeMarco. <laughs> Sometimes here at the Lion's Arms, there are different characters walking around. And, well, I just ran into Richard Nixon. <laughs> well, w- welcome, Richard. Uh, you've been missed. Oh, thank you. Thank you, God. <laughs> and over in the Geneva, Illinois side of the bar, where the streets of Third Street and... State Street are now a winter wonderland. Ed, hello, Ed. Hey, y'all. How how was a uh, Christmas walk in uh, uh, Christmas, Geneva, Illinois? It was it was magical, um, as magical as it can be, with uh, five children um, <laughs> trying to corral them. And no, it's a Geneva, Illinois is uh, it, it's a fantastic uh, tradition, uh, heavily settled, settled by the Swedish. Uh, we have a Annual Christmas walk where um, Santa Lucia, the uh, patron saint of Sweden, comes with candles in her hair and hands out cookies to the good children. <laughs> and the, the, the town tree is lit up and Santa comes. And it's, it's really, it was, if you're curious about it, it was actually the Christmas walk was on the Ellen Show. About oh, uh, really? eight years ago. Well, the, the New York City uh, holiday traditions are going strong. Uh, you know, standing on the platform at the Broadway Lafayette F train stop where everybody has an armload of packages and there's not enough room for everybody and you're afraid you're going to fall into the tracks. That's that's <laughs> how we celebrate it. <laughs> Some celebrate it by pushing onto the tracks. Yeah, that's true. That's, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, you bastard. <laughs> uh, well... Uh, it is, uh, no, it is no longer November, it's December 5th, and, uh, we've had a great Thanksgiving. We are still, though, somehow in, uh, election land. Several weeks after the actual election, uh, the, the president-elect is dominating the headlines, and so, uh, we're going to talk today about a, a, a news item that may have been overlooked 
with the help of Tim, we're going to find out all about what that is. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, this very unique thing about our president-elect, his teetotaling, uh, and how uh, unique that is, actually, among our presidents. And then Ed is going to share a tale of election intrigue and murder and mayhem. Uh, So it should be a good grab bag today. Uh, But before we jump in, let's talk a little bit about what we're drinking. Uh, Ed, how about you? Well, I am actually, uh, for those that don't know, uh, a proud Wisconsin Badger. So I uh, went out to the basketball game uh, this uh, weekend where we won, and I was able to pick up a six-pack of New Glarus Fat Squirrel, the uh, uh, nice brown ale. And New Glarus, if you don't know, is a legendary brewery that you can only buy the beer in Wisconsin itself. Really? Not over the border in uh, Illinois. There's been multiple instances in Chicago of bars getting fined for uh, uh, <laughs> serving it without because it's not licensed to be in uh, Illinois. It is uh, Wisconsin only. Is that by choice or just by the way it happened to be? But by by choice, I think. I mean, it's it's like the nineteenth biggest microbrewery in the uh, country, and it only serves Wisconsin. So that tells you about the drinking habits of the Wisconsinites. Uh, I think it there. says more about the relationship of uh, people in Illinois to people in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But you know, hey, it was. Uh, I was. I managed to. Uh, uh, scrolled away in 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 my trunk, and uh, the border patrol did not actually. <laughs> Uh, sniff it out. So it was a, another smuggling run done well. So <laughs> hope, hopefully the next one will go smoothly. You're a modern well, day now. Now right? we know what they were drinking on November eighth. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. So how does it compare to Milwaukee's best? Uh, well, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> well, the beast is uh, has a, a notable uh, urinal smell. Yeah, that this is lacking. Um, mm. This is more more nutty. And less, you know, shitty. So, yes. <laughs> Other than that, you know, it's pretty much the same. I think you made a good choice. Tim, what about you? I am drinking McAllen 15-year triple cask matured. And I want to thank, once again, my brother-in-law, Brian Riley, for buying me this handsome bottle of wonderful, uh, fine single malt. Um, for my 40th birthday. This is from Speyside, Scotland, um, and it mm-hmm. is aged in three different oaks, European oak casks seasoned with sherry, American oak casks seasoned with, um, uh, with bourbon, um, and also American oak casks seasoned with, with sherry. Um, so it, it really... Packs a very interesting, complex flavor, and I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful, wonderful pastime. <laughs> well, for myself, I'm enjoying, from the makers of Bell's Double Hearted Ale, or sorry, Two Hearted Ale, uh, I am enjoying Bell's Winter White Ale, which they describe as a Belgian-inspired wheat ale. And it is really one of the best seasonal brews I've ever had. It is a um, uh, it's a very unfiltered, cloudy uh, Belgian uh, style ale, and uh, it is the rare 
seasonal ale that isn't overwhelming with the uh, with the spices. Uh, it's just uh, a very smooth but very flavorful Belgian-style ale, and uh, it was a fantastic uh, discovery that I made last week um, thanks to an app called Minibar, which delivers beer to you in under an hour to your door. My my favorite seasonal brew, of course, is actually Milwaukee's best Arbor Day leaf-flavored lager. Um, from what I understand, they just put some leaves in their beer. <laughs> and uh, got to tell you, you can really taste the tannins of that, that uh, those rotting leaves. So, oh Depending so. on where the leaves are from, you might even get, if it's Central Park, you might get a finger or uh, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> like an IUD. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, fellas, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I was talking about how I thought that in a few weeks, a few days' time, we'd have uh, our very first female president and history would be made. As it turns <laughs> out, that that didn't happen. I tried uh, to disabuse you of that. I tried. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were crazy when you told me you thought he could win, uh, but he did. You were uh, once again. I, I Tim, I'm starting to wonder if you have some sort of. Uh, magical power to predict the future <laughs> and i'm suspecting witchcraft at this point um <laughs> i think i well some of my relatives were probably or should have been burned at the stake um <laughs> but that's a different story well what we are getting though is the first teetotaler president that we've had in a long time since jimmy carter actually who i was surprised to learn recently what? is it is that true Jimmy Trump Carter, doesn't drink. Jimmy, Trump doesn't drink. Trump doesn't drink. Oh, not, he's, never he's, never, he's never had a drop. He's never he's never had a drop. Yeah, you know he's the first teetotaler to uh, hold uh, this office since Jimmy Carter, who uh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this until recently, actually banned hard liquor from the White House. Not only that, on the campaign tra- trail, made kind of a big deal out of his. Uh, desire to get rid of the three martini lunch from the uh, the culture of Washington. So let's God, just another thing to blame. Carter yeah, well, for. let's yeah. just let's just, let's just think monster. back, a few, uh, you know, to la- an episode last year when we talked about uh, Jimmy <laughs> Carter sitting in front of the fire with his cardigan sweater. <laughs> and add Give to me that, another chance. <laughs> add to that his teetotaling, and what we have is really the biggest killjoy president. Uh, perhaps of all time. <laughs> well, Except he did love Horatio Hornblower, so we can give him credit for that. Oh, that that is true. I, love I mean, we, you know, like, how, however, you know, let me <laughs> let's get this straight though. Wasn't uh, W. Bush? He wasn't a drinker when he no, but he encouraged it. <laughs> he <clears throat> well, he was a, he wasn't a drinker anymore officially, but there was that pretzel incident. That still has not gotten a good explanation. Anyone can fall in a pretzel. <laughs> can fall in a pretzel. It was him or the pretzel. <laughs> uh, so I thought we could just take a little bit of a survey of the presidents uh, of the 20th century 
just a high-level survey and, and just explore their relationship, not only to alcohol, but other substances so we can see how uh, alcohol in particular helped, may have helped them in their presidency or, or hurt them. So I'd like to start with uh, FDR. FDR, as I, uh, I knew he was a martini man, but I didn't know until recently that he was, he fancied himself a, a master cocktail maker. This yes. Is, this is true. Um, and that uh, every afternoon, late afternoon, he would prepare cocktails for his inner circle. And he called this ritual the children's hour. I, I couldn't have, couldn't have come up with a creepier name for it. Yeah, yeah. I have to imagine he's sitting there with the drinks cart there. Uh, with he, he uh, was still living with his mother at the time, so you know, he's <laughs> dressing as dressing as a girl. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. Well, he's sit- we're, we're just saying he had a f- up childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining he's sitting there in the Oval Office and he's making cocktails with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and uh, Little Orphan Annie. <laughs> Children's Hour. He must have right. been blasted if he's making up with at least one fictional character, one mannequin. But, but <laughs> so he 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 loved he he loved this ritual. He loved making these cocktails. But uh, by all accounts, these were the worst tasting cocktails ever. That he had no skill for it. Um, but his drinking did seem to have a very positive effect on. Diplomacy for him. He famously gave Stalin his first martini, and Stalin complained that it was a little too cold in his stomach. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he could have g- given Stalin his worst. Um, like I drank sewer <laughs> vodka daily, so it's okay. But but more importantly, perhaps uh, were his uh, all night drinking sessions with Winston Spencer Churchill. <laughs> yeah. There are stories of him giving instructions to the White House staff to make sure they had uh, dozens of bottles ready for when Churchill would come to visit um, and that it would take him a, a whole day to recover from his meetings with Churchill. But uh, I don't know. One, would, one could argue that, that the uh, transatlantic partnership would not have been what it was if it wasn't for uh, their mutual love of the spirits. I, I wonder, John, if uh, one of those all night binges was punctuated by that famous moment where Churchill um, <laughs> gets out of the tub and he's walking yes. around naked and <laughs> runs into Franklin Roosevelt and says, <laughs> You see, Franklin, I have nothing to hide. <laughs> well, let's fast forward to uh, to Eisenhower. I don't. I got Truman. Come on. Man. Oh well, Truman had a shot of bourbon every morning. Every he? morning. Every morning. He, drank, he started he off. He drank at sh- all the rest of the day. He just had one slug of bourbon every day. But when when he started I, the day, he started the day with a bourbon and, and a massage, right, or something. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's he's living the life. Or living. Yeah. didn't he live to ninety two? He did. But you can't you can't argue with results. And to all our listeners, I, I I implore you get a bottle of bourbon and head down to the uh, 
your local Asian massage parlor. And every morning, <laughs> I don't know, I don't you, know. You can cut that out. There, there, there will be a president after Trump, and who knows what his special sauce is going to be? Uh, <laughs> it might be that might be his ritual. Well, then let's move ahead to Eisenhower. Now, I don't have any good anecdotes about Eisenhower's drinking while he was in office, but there, there is a, a legend of him uh, at Fort Meade in the 30s. I'm sorry, during the tw- in the 20s, rather, during Prohibition, uh, making bathtub gin with uh, the future General Patton. And uh, the, the, the bathtub exploding <laughs> in the process of making it. So I don't know. Who knows if that's true or not? Uh, but I, I'd like to believe that's true. Let's jump ahead to, uh, to Richard Milhouse Nixon, who we spoke oh, to very briefly at the beginning of this episode. Uh, <coughs> it's no secret that Nixon's staff, much of Nixon's staff, believed he had an alcohol problem, and they took steps to uh, mitigate the potential damage caused by it. Nixon apparently was a lightweight who got drunk very quickly. There were memos from uh, Al Haig, chief of staff, uh, that said something to the effect of, actually, I have the memo itself. Uh, this was when uh, Nixon went to China and uh, uh, Nixon's staff found out that he was going to be expected to drink Mao Tai uh, in some of these uh, toasts with the Chinese. And Mao Tai is, a, I've never had it myself, but apparently it's an extremely coarse 110 proof drink made from uh, fermented sorghum. And so Al, Al Haig sent a, uh, a memo to uh, the staff accompanying uh, Nixon to China that read, Under no, repeat, no circumstances should the president actually drink from his glass in response to banquet toast. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, but he, he, he did, he, he did uh, actually drink the Mao Tai, only a little tiny bit. Um, but he was amused by this, by the coarseness of this drink and the, and the, uh, the, the, uh, premier of China, whose name I don't remember, um, apparently actually did a little experiment for Nixon where he lit the Mao Tai on fire. <laughs> wait, his, I mean, wait, you mean Mao? No, 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 no. The, the uh, Mao's, uh, Goddamn uh, thing went up like an oar. <laughs> Mao's, Mao's, uh, a prime minister. Basically. Oh, okay. Um, so then uh, a, a couple weeks later, Nixon's back uh, in the White House. He's with uh, his daughter, was it Trish? And he was telling her, oh, uh, uh, the, pre- uh, the, the pre- prime minister was showing me how this, this light's on fire. Uh, yo, 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 watch this. And he gets out a lighter and he sets fire to the Mountai he brought back. And it actually uh, ignited the papers on his desk. <laughs> and he almost set fire to the Oval Office. Huh. By, I can uh, use let, this technique in the future. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, is, is that the missing uh Yeah, maybe minutes? that's where the tapes are. <laughs> yeah, that should take it. Burned up by Mao Tai. Oh. Um, but my favorite uh, Nixon and alcohol story is, uh, so, well, some of my favorite examples of, of drunk Nixon are his uh, drunk calls to Haldeman, where he's telling him how much he loves him. And uh, Tim, I don't know if you have um, 
you have that transcript in front of you. I, I have it. I, I have it in front of me. All right. So, Tim, I'll be Haldeman and okay. you be you be uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins as Richard Nixon. <laughs> OK. you down. No, sir. You got your points over, and now you've got you've got it set right. And move on. You're right where you ought to be. Well, it's a tough thing, Bob, for you and uh, for John and the rest. But God damn it, I'm never going to discuss the son of a bitching Watergate thing again. Never, 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 never. Don't you agree? Uh, yes, sir. You've done it now, and you've laid out your position. You've laid it out. You've you've taken your steps. You've put. Oh, uh, interesting thing. We haven't heard uh, the only thing, the only cabinet member that has called, and this is 50 minutes after the thing is over, is Cap Weinberger, bless his soul. All the rest are waiting to see what the polls show. Goddamn strong cabinet, isn't it? You better check and be sure, because they may, oh, you know, we've had a... They, they know, they know, they know who to call. They know they can get through, but in any event... I just want you to know that Cap called, and and, and and he's all the way... Good. But let me say, you're a strong man, goddammit. I love you. Well... And, you know, I love John. And all the rest. By God, keep the faith. Keep the faith. You're, you're going to win this son of a bitch. Absolutely. You noticed uh, what I said about the uh, violence and so forth on the other side. I mean... There were some intricacies, uh, hang on a minute there, uh, Bob. Uh, uh, intricacies, and this that only the sophisticated will understand. Yes, sir, and I want to get the text because there were some things to work on, on from there and that we can build on. I thought it was a good hand on what I deeply felt, you know, the religious note, you know, God bless America. I'm sure it must have driven up, driven me up the wall, but I felt that way. No, I'm all for that. I completely agree. I don't know whether you can call and get any reactions. Call me back, like you know, like the old style. I don't think I can. I completely agree. I'm in an odd spot to try to do that. Don't call a goddamn soul. Let me just say, getting this call from you when I haven't heard from any cabinet officer except Weinberger, and after I. An hour afterwards, and no staff member... When I called, the board said they were instructed not to put any calls through. The hell with that. I told them to put calls through. Well, that may be why they... You haven't gotten them, because... All right, I'll change it. Fine, I'll change it. But God bless you, boy. God bless you. I love you. And, and you know, as my, as my brother, I oh. think of you that way. Oh, uh, as okay. my brothers, sometimes okay. I think of you another way. Oh, uh, okay. All right, boy. Keep the faith. Pat, uh, Pat is a man's name uh, and a woman's name. Understand, Bob? Robert and Roberta. It's a, a woman and a man can be the same, Bob. Do you, you know what phlebitis is? It's uh, very painful. Sometimes you need your legs massaged. I think there was some uh, little improv at the end of that one. <laughs> that was, uh, that was uh, that's awesome. And did he mention John in there? Was he dragging? It was Nixon dragging John Miller into the Watergate plot. <laughs> I um, <laughs> somehow. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm at to spend some time in a uh, a, a white collar prison. <laughs> oh man, let's do it together, boy. <laughs> We're gonna bunk up. We're gonna be. We're gonna be bunk mates. We're gonna. Be- we're going to make prison boots together. <laughs> Mr. Booze. Mr. Booze. Mr. Booze. Mr. B-double-O-Z. That sure spells booze. You will wind up wearing tattered shoes if you mess with Mr. Booze. Don't mess with Mr. Booze. Don't mess with Mr. Blues. Don't mess with D-double-O-Z. If you've been so stiff they thought you'd die, you'll feel better once you testify. 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 I ran across this story quite a while ago, and it was it is the uh, story of the only governor who was killed in office and also the governor that had the shortest <laughs> Span of office. I want to take you back to Civil War, Kentucky. At that time, it was really riven with the uh, um, divisions of the Civil War. In the East, they would uh, probably have sympathized more with the, their uh, West Virginian brethren, non, non-slaveholders, and more anti-slavery, anti-Southern aristocrat. And the West was largely Southern slaveholding elite. And the North part of it was more Union manufacturing. I bring up this whole map because it will become important. Kentucky was actually on the Union side, uh, during the uh, Civil War and was pretty pro-Union until the Emancipation Proclamation uh, really turned a lot of segments against uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans. And that was kind of a, a thing that uh, uh, would mark politics in Kentucky for decades to come. The de- Democrats were definitely the uh, the prevailing power in Kentucky. And over the next 25 years, what they managed to do was get in really good with uh, some of the industrial concerns uh, in, in of that era, most uh, specifically the railroads. I would like to introduce a gentleman named William Gable, or Gobel, uh, G-O-E-B-E-L. Yes, he was actually the son of uh, German immigrants, and he was not your typical Southern politician since he was... Uh, spoke German until the age of six and was born in Pennsylvania. He moved to Kentucky after his father fought for the Union during the Civil War and moved to uh, uh, Covington, which is right across the border from Cincinnati. He uh, eventually became a lawyer and uh, he essentially made his bones uh, suing railroads. And the largest was the uh, LNN, Louisville and Nashville Railroad. And he sued them for worker abuses, uh, sued them for uh, not paying proper compensation uh, for en- eminent domain, uh, you know, takeovers, etc., etc. He was uh, actually undefeated against the LNN. He uh, eventually decided to run for the state Senate and take the fight against the Ellen and Railroad and the Railroad Barons. He's becoming known as the people's lawyer 
uh, champion of the common man, and he quickly became a de facto leader of the Kentucky Senate. Uh, what he didn't have going for him was he was a difficult and mean person, and he was described by <laughs> colleagues as having contemptuous lips, a sharp nose, and humorless eyes, and being reptilian. He was not a great public speaker, and he made enemies constantly. What he did have going for him is he had a deep, booming, loud voice, perfect for demonizing robber barons in front of crowds, and he really tapped into a vein. He, this is in the 1880s and 1890s, and he was the one of the first true populists to uh, accrue any uh, recognition and power. Most importantly, he backed a strong state railroad commission, which until this point had been kind of a, you know, pushover for the uh, interests of the railroads. Uh, it's important to, to note he was actually, he was a Democrat, and he ran against other Democrats uh, that were the ones supporting the railroad. Again, he made enemies. He, he was not a guy that like just talked about, you know, just general corporates, corporate this, corporate that. No, no, no. He, he, he named names. He managed to uh, put a limit on tolls on the uh, bridge connecting Cincinnati for, from, and Covington, Kentucky. Of course, many people from Kentucky were going to uh, uh, go on this bridge to work in Cincinnati. Well, he really screwed one uh, John L. Sanford, a uh, influential uh, businessman in uh, Covington. So he uh, decided to uh, retaliate, and this is where he made a, a pretty poor move. Apparently, Gable was uh, considered uh, for the state's appeals court, and uh, Sanford used his influence to prevent him from getting appointed. Fast forward, and they kind of escalate, you know, tit for tat. So Sanford decided to post Gable several times in different newspapers around Cincinnati and Covington. And posting was a practice of just basically writing bad things anonymously about a person. So he, you know, Gable was, you know, dishonest or he's a showboat or, or whatever. But Gable was not exactly a subtle person. Uh, so he, when he was got confirmation that it was Sanford doing this posting, he referred to him publicly as Colonel John Gonorrhea Stanford. Sanford, you know, uh, the uh, Confederate veteran, uh, was not amused. So I'll f fast forward to uh, April 11th, nice day, where Gable and two of his friends were walking down the street in Covington. And as they were approaching a bank, one of his friends saw a guy, uh, standing next to it and said, um, hey, there's that Sanford. Sanford greeted them both because back in the day, you'd still like have to greet your, your enemy. Sanford said, do you assume responsibility for the recent newspaper article calling me John Gonorrhea Sanford? Gable answered probably, I do. Whereupon Sanford drew a revolver out of his pocket, shoved it in Gable's abdomen and fired. And, uh, basically missed. He hit uh, a bunch of the fabric, and I can only assume this at the end of the turn of the century. Hit, there was like multiple petticoats and waistcoats and, and whatnot. Grazed him. But this is the South, ladies and gentlemen. 
and no one comes unprepared. So the instant he saw Sanford reaching in his pocket, Gable (laughs) stepped back and pulled out his own revolver. And half a second after he was shot and missed, he stepped back and shot him in the face. Sanford would die less than an hour later. Gable uh, evidenced no remorse for the killing. It was at the time it was called a duel, and uh, it wasn't a duel. It was stra- it was a straight up it was straight up throwdown uh, by all witnesses. But uh, no one was going to arrest him. All the witnesses, including uh, not his friends, confirmed that Sanford had uh, drawn first. So Gable has pissed off a lot of people. He pissed off uh, local business people. He managed to turn the tables on the LNN Railroad, who were pushing for the governor to ban the Railroad Commission, which would set the rates and set the compensation um, for uh, land eminent uh, domain and whatnot. Gable managed to make even more enemies by insisting on a uh, constitutional amendment to the Kentucky state constitution, which unbelievably he managed to get it passed, not only preserving the commission in the Kentucky uh, constitution, but making it even more powerful. Where we are right here is this is a really hard turn of the century populist who has pissed off basically every powerful interest except the working people of Kentucky. In 1899, he decided he's going to run for governor. The governor at the time was actually a Republican, and the Republicans did have a, a well of support in the, the eastern mountainous part of, of Kentucky, but he also essentially just pissed off Democrats the entire time. He kind of is splitting the Democratic Party in two, Fortunately for him, he was no dummy. He was an incredibly shrewd politician. He went into this Democratic convention with the um, establishment Democrats running a Civil War hero, Confederate hero against him. Fortunately for him, there was a free silver party, William Jennings Bryant kind of party running for the Democrats too. They were a minority in the three, but they were still very populist as well. So he was able to maneuver himself into the nomination at the convention by cooperating with these other populists and then absolutely betraying them. He basically (laughs) made a a backroom agreement with them to uh, get their people on uh, the nominating board. And then when things couldn't be decided, managed to throw his delegates to his enemies after agreeing that the lowest, lowest politician of these three had to drop out and managed to screw over his partner, this other uh, populist. And then gambled that, well, if that guy was out, his delegates were going to support Gable. So he was nominated as governor. He barnstormed uh, Kentucky talking about how he's going to throw people in jail. He literally said to his uh, closest uh, associates when asked, what are you going to do when you become governor? And he said, well, I'm going to take this one political operative and I'm going to convict him. I'm going to throw him in prison. (laughs) So... We're, you're, we're getting to some... Uh, parallels? Yeah, parallels of what's <laughs> been going on. 
to everyone's surprise, on November 7th, 1899, he lost the vote by 2,000 votes. And uh, he he took the news pretty graciously, uh, <laughs> thinking of supporters, but uh, supporters did not take it graciously. And they demanded a recount. And they claimed to have identified thousands of ballots that were uh, illegal. And uh, they, as specified in the state constitution, uh, <laughs> contested, contested elections in the governor and lieutenant governor races had to be decided by two contest committees, one for each office, each committee made up of 11 members of the legislature. So the names of each legislature were written into separate slips of paper that were rolled tightly and dropped in a box. The clerk then shook the box and drew 11 names, reading each name out loud. Of course, the committee had uh, nine Democrats, one Republican, (laughs) (laughs) and one populist who usually voted Democrat. The Republicans were not, were, they were pissed off at this. They could see what was going on. And, uh, more than a thousand armed mountain men from Eastern Kentucky descended on the Capitol to, uh, filibuster for their rightful governor as they saw, uh, Governor Taylor. You got this contested election. You got, uh, Gable pissing off every faction of his party and you got a bunch of armed mountain men literally this is what they could they call them armed mountain men not just me saying this <laughs> that louisville courier, courier journal declares armed mob of mountaineers invade frankfurt to bully legislature did they have I, to provide their own uh one strapped overalls <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's very little abner sounding in any case, but they think they're getting screwed out of the, uh, the, out of the election. So they're trying to settle it, and uh, Gable is walking to the entrance of the Capitol building when a shot rang out. He got hit in the chest by a bullet. No one knew where it came from. No one knew who had done it. Gable is in serious condition, is being uh, hustled to a hotel as he's bleeding profusely. There's armed mountain men. There's pissed off supporters of Gable. There's just a, a keg of TNT. The the governor declared a state of emergency and ordered the militia to Frankfurt. And uh, he ordered the legislature to adjourn immediately and meet in London, Connecticut, which was a solidly Republican location miles away from Frankfurt. And the next day, this contest committee declared Gable had received the highest number of votes. Surprise, surprise. And had won the governor's race. So he was allegedly alive, sworn in as governor, whereupon he uh, replaced the uh, general of the militia with his own guy and ordered him to take over the militia and had his own lieutenant governor. So we have a governor on his deathbed and his lieutenant and another governor... (laughs) and another lieutenant governor, and it's just bananas. So, some of the politicians there that were not as hot-blooded as uh, Gable came together to talk about how we're going to resolve this thing, Republicans and Democrats. Before they could do that, um, Gable died. So his William Beckham, uh, his lieutenant governor, was sworn in. Mm -hmm. 
Again, there was another governor and another lieutenant governor in a different town in Kentucky. And this is not the Civil War. This is 1900 at this point. Uh, there was two militias because the other governor had uh, declared all those mountain men his militia. It could have turned into a mini Kentucky Civil War. Fortunately, the two sides were able to uh, come together and basically negotiate a, uh, a truce, which was not to the current governor Taylor's liking. They recognized Beckham as a governor. Everyone stood down and there was not going to be any violence. Speaking of how well Taylor thought of this arrangement, he fled to Indiana and he never returned to Kentucky the rest of his life for fear of his, of his life. Thus ended Gable, who was, uh, was buried with honors. And if you go down to the old capital of Kentucky now, there is a plaque on the walkway going up to it that marks exactly where he was shot that morning. Gable's uh, legacy... Well, I didn't go far enough to, you know, to the future to talk about his legacy, but he uh, in Kentucky, but he was one of the first populists and he, uh, along with the like of Williams, William Jennings Bryant, he was uh, uh, the harbinger of a lot uh, more resistance against big uh, monopolies uh, around the country. And uh, I thought when I read, when I read this, it was just, I mean, thank God we didn't come to bullets and armed mountain men in the streets in this election. <laughs> oh, there's the, time. Oh, you know, there is time. Absolutely. I, I think it did happen. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> the 2,000 votes and oh, new votes were found and, and uh, the, the jockeying for who was going to be on this committee. And there's a, honestly a great book to be uh, written about this in this entire life of this uh uh, guy and uh, this whole th- that whole transition and this this story ends in 1900. Yep, 1900 that is incredible. The things that in 1900 there were still you could still put together a militia of mountain men. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would say and, that and, they exist and the, now. <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. Yeah, the militia of mountain men are the, yeah they were the uh, they were the anti business pro Republican anti Confederate. Part of Kentucky. Kentucky. You are the dearest land outside of heaven to me. Kentucky. I miss you, Laurel, and your redwood tree. So, from the presidential penchant for Mr. B-O-O-Z-E, or <laughs> lack thereof, to ghastly governor's assassinations in Kentucky, we now go to a thwarted coup attempt in Montenegro, which means, once again, we have all of the makings of a Harry Flashman novel right here at the Barstool (laughs) Historian. Uh, This year is the 70th anniversary year of the famous Iron Curtain speech that Winston Churchill gave in 1946 when he was invited to Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, 
Uh, and he shared a stage with Harry Truman and other dignitaries. That is after having lost the election in Great Britain, after having saved the Western world, he was swiftly thrown out of office in a very British revolutionary kind of a way without having a revolution. The electorate was tired of the war, and we know that Winston Churchill made some missteps in the campaign comparing his opponents to Nazis, and so a war-weary Britain who had lost a generation in World War I and the empire in World War II decided, thank you, Mr. Churchill, but we'll have someone else. And the very thing that made him remind them of war and remove him from office is the very thing that gives him the moniker of political prophet. Because in 1946, he delivered the famous Iron Curtain speech, which is a term that defined the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union. And it is a term that permeated U.S. and geopolitical policy in the bipolar world for the next 50 plus years until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. It is my duty to place before you certain facts about the present position in Europe. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest and Sofia. All these famous cities and the population around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. Imagine sitting on the stage after having conquered the Nazis and the Japanese charged with the task of rebuilding the world. And here's a man who should be tired and is looking to pick a fight with someone else. It must have been outrageous. And it was uh, not warmly received. It was received tepidly. And Truman and the United States, and uh, in particular, viewed the Soviet Union as and Stalin as manageable, uh, someone who they could balance against easily. And they were wrong. Winston Churchill was right. So we fast forward to the dissolution of the Soviet Union after 50 plus years of a so-called Cold War, which had many proxies and many casualties. We come to the modern era when the countries that were created as a result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union coalesce and split into very familiar places, pro-NATO and pro-Russian. Some countries, like Montenegro, have become very important. Montenegro being a small country that was part of Yugoslavia and formed as a result of the violent dissolution of Yugoslavia after the Soviet Union collapsed. And Montenegro has become a place that seeks membership into NATO. They began to seek that membership in December of 2015, and they have been invited to 
join the NATO powers. And that has made Russia and Putin very, very uneasy. Montenegro is important because even though it has some 600,000 residents, it controls a stretch of coast where warships can dock between Gibraltar and eastern Turkey. That is not already in the hands of the NATO alliance. And so the imprint and the footprint of the Iron Curtain remains today. And that takes us to October 16th of this year, in which a coup, the likes of which you would think you could read similarly to instances like the defenestration of Prague <laughs> or something something that occurred many hundreds of years ago. Uh, a coup attempt was thwarted in which pro-Russian forces on October 16th during the national elections would overtake the parliament, distract the parliament and the parliamentary uh, house and the security and assassinate the premier. Apparently, that coup was thwarted by some very good intelligence. But the interesting component of this are the pro-Russian forces, the dark and mysterious anti-NATO forces that have been allegedly assembled by Putin in order to install an anti-NATO regime. Now, I'll give you an example of some of these dark and mysterious forces. There is a group called the Night Wolves, which is a <laughs> Russian motorcycle gang. Uh, the leader is apparently a friend of Putin, and the mercenaries in this gang fought in eastern Ukraine uh, on the side of Russian-backed separatists. Also, and this is the really strange one, apparently the Eastern Orthodox Church is very much against NATO and views it as a threat to Slavic fraternity. And there's a, a priest by the name of Father Krivokopik who presided over a medieval-type ceremony of what is called, it's a foundation called the Balkan Cossack Army, which is a Russian-led pro-Slavic nationalist group that is hostile to NATO. They apparently had uh, almost a religious ceremony in which they uh, knighted these people to, to take over the parliament and install anti-NATO forces. There's an informant who is a, a veteran anti-Western activist, and he has indicated and provided some evidence that, in fact, the entire coup was orchestrated by the Putin government. And two of the operatives, uh, Montenegrin authorities say, were carrying Russian passports. Two of the main operatives, a guy by the name of Edward Shirikov and Vladimir Popov, who commanded this plot... Both of these men are currently now in Russia, and they escaped. These men oversaw preparations for this coup, apparently from Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, and now they're back in Moscow. There is some interesting evidence through informants who are not so confidential that Russia is in fact attempting to place these mysterious forces at the fringe of Balkan society into play to, to oppose NATO.
So the lesson here is that while 70 years has passed and many wars have been fought, the imprint and the geopolitical strategic forces that still seek to balance Russia uh, and to keep it at bay have, in a sense, there is there is an, an undulating Cold War that's that's going on right now. The great game continues. Yes. Harry Flashman would feel at home. <laughs> yes, indeed. I googled the Night Wolves, and boy, they are they are they are creepy. Yeah, they have a pretty uh, badass patch, though. A flaming they, wolf head going yeah. through the moon. They did a tour of twelve countries: Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, which they called their march aimed at strengthening the dialogue between Slavic peoples. <laughs> yeah, you know that place has been the the start and the impetus for global warfare in in the last century, and it continues to be a bubbling hotbed of of um of tribalism in many respects the black hand reborn <laughs> gavrilo <laughs> princip lives <laughs> on a harley <laughs> <laughs> Well, that almost wraps it up for this episode of the Barstool Historian. Before we close, though, however, I'd like to uh, start a new tradition on this podcast, and that is nominating an eccentric personality, an eccentric overachiever from history for a new awards ceremony that we're initiating here called the Dexties, named after a man that Ed introduced us to a few weeks ago, Sir Timothy Dexter, uh, the great... Uh, eccentric of the 18th century, sir, Lord. Oh, I'm Timothy. sorry, Lord. And Timothy speaking Dexter. of Lord, he is, he is the patron on. saint of Barstool. Well, he, he's not. the patron saint of the Barstool story. Saint Timothy Dexter, I could call him. <laughs> so I'd like to put forward the name of one Tycho Bray, the uh, 16th century Danish astronomer who was genuinely brilliant. He discovered the supernova in 1572 and was the mentor of Johannes Kepler, the great astronomer. But what makes him Dexty worthy is uh, a couple of things. Well, a few things. Let's start with his artificial nose. <laughs> this man lost a nose, his real nose, his original nose, in a duel and... Purchased a replacement made of gold, silver, alloy, and would walk around with a vial of paste with him so that when his gold, silver, alloy nose fell off his face, he could just paste it right back on his face. He also had a strange custom for his dinner parties. He'd invite dinner guests over to his house, he'd seat them down at their the table, and he would not tell them about the dwarf who would sit underneath the table uh, and would just eat under the table. A dwarf named Jep. Who <laughs> Tycho Bray believed was clairvoyant. And dinner guests would reportedly sit at the table for the entire dinner and Tycho Bray wouldn't say a single word 
about this dwarf sitting underneath the table. And then, finally, the most extraordinary of all, Tycho Bray had a pet moose. Not just a pet moose, but an alcoholic pet moose. Because Tycho Bray... The best kind. Uh, <laughs> best kind of moose. Tycho Bray got in the habit of feeding his moose beer every single day. And the moose apparently actually became dependent on this beer. So there we go. There's my nomination for this week's episode. Tycho Bray for a Dexty. Well, I, I think uh, that's an excellent, an excellent nomination. And I often give it, give these types of, of historical um, discussions, my litmus test, which is if I had a time machine, would I go back in time to meet this person? And even if I only had a handful of tries, just to witness his nose fall off <laughs> would be enough for me uh, to take that trip. So I think it's a, it's a very valid nomination, and, and I would second it. I don't know about you, Ed. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I, I really <clears throat> respect the commitment to uh, his past mistakes by making sure all his portraits clearly show that he has a fake nose. I yeah. love that. Too. <laughs> Have you seen that blonde mustache? On, yeah. On, holy <laughs> sh- well, I think it's great. I want to say one thing totally unrelated, though, if we're ending our episode, but we would be remiss if we didn't recognize the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor oh. on December 7th. We would be remiss. You know, I like to think that maybe when the dust had settled, that um, FDR in one of those children's hour sessions in the Oval Office as he's making cocktails for his his uh, best friends may have created a drink called the drink that shall live in infamy. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry. Oh, but by, by the way, the uh, head of the... Uh, Night Wolves is uh, Alexander Zolnadstanov, known as the Surgeon. And <laughs> oh boy, holy! <laughs> yeah, you sure you wanted to do that, what, Tim? <laughs> well, I hear we're a big hit in uh, the former Soviet. Yeah. Oh yeah. God, <laughs> we're gonna get uh, some interesting, uh, <laughs> some interesting Facebook messages. <laughs> yes, yes, I think we will. <laughs> This is how wars begin, fellas. Uh, <laughs> All yes. right. Well, that about wraps it up for another episode of the Bar Stool Historian. You can find all of our past episodes on iTunes. You can also listen to them on barstoolhistorian.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the BS Historian, appropriately enough, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash barstoolhistorian. <laughs> From me, John, and from Tim, and from Ed, thank you so much for listening, and bye-bye. God bless you, and God bless America.